0: Welcome back to another episode of Bed Letter. I am your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is the podcast where we chat a little bit about our psychohuman brains, a little about our loony human behavior, and a lot about how all of that fits together. So it looks like we are here on episode 24. Uh, Thank you so much again for those of you who are out there tagging along. I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen. It means a lot to me, so thank you so much. If you're interested in more of the stuff that I'm working on, uh, you can head over to cashleman.com. That's where I post to my blog, and I have a page there that describes the different editing and tutoring and mentoring services that I offer as well. Um, tied with that, I also have a Patreon now that gives you access to the Bedletter Community Discord server as well as a monthly newsletter that has a bunch of information, a lot of the source news article links, um different writings that I've been doing, different stuff like that in the newsletter. So, uh, and then there's a whole bunch of other things as well. So again, you can find all that stuff over on my website. That's cashleman.com. C A S H L I M A N.com. All right. So for today's episode, once again, we're going to switch things up a little bit, kind of changing the flow. Um, it's kind of what I've been enjoying doing is kind of messing with format a little bit. I mean, it's, it's overall, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. It's pretty similar, pretty similar, pretty, uh, consistent routine that we kind of go through over overall, um, mostly just the format that I've been kind of playing with, which by the way, if you have a favorite, you know, shorter format, longer format, multiple articles in one episode, one episode per, uh, Per article, per research article, you know, different, whatever format thing you like, you know, the lessons, different things. If you're something that you're enjoying, please let me know. If there's something you're not enjoying, please let me know. I appreciate feedback, uh, constructive feedback, and um, there's several different places you can do that. It's the, you know, the Discord server is one place, um, but also social media. There's different places where I post about the, the episodes as they come out so you can reply there. There's there's lots of ways to get in contact um, there's also just a straight-up contact form on my website, com, where you can go there as well. So, again, uh, please let me know if there's something that you've been enjoying. Um, but let's kind of hop into it today. I'm looking at doing a kind of a news roundup because sometimes there's just way too many interesting news articles in psychology news. And um, I think it'd be kind of fun. So I kind of chose... Uh, like eight, something like that, different articles, kind of just going to fly through and give kind of a surface level look at them, um, kind of as just a roundup from the last week. What What's happened in the last week in, in the realm of psychology, the realm of, of mental health, the realm of all that stuff, what's happened in the last week that is uh, funny, worthy of note, uh, has some sort of effect culturally on things, you know, whatever. Things that just caught my eye, and there's a lot of stuff that's been coming out lately, but... There's just a couple that I picked that were interesting. Um, we're gonna kind of gloss over them and <clears throat> see where it takes us. So, the first one we're gonna look at is a article called "New Study Disavows Marshmallow Tests' Predictive Powers," and it is posted on the UL- UCLA Anderson Review. Um, it is it was written by D. Gill, posted on February twenty fourth, two thousand twenty one. And the research was done by Daniel J. Benjamin, David Leibson, Walter Michelle, Philip K. Peak, Yushi Shoda, uh, Alexandra Wells, Joe, and Nicole Wilson. So lots of people involved, lots of players. Doesn't matter. None of those people. Uh, no need to remember them right now. They just were the ones that did this research. So, um, just starting off, if you don't know what the marshmallow test is, right? Uh, the marshmallow test well i suppose the 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 article might briefly explain it but basically the marshmallow test is a test that they did a long time ago and it's the marshmallow test is uh, in psychology it's a psychological test that they give to children where they sit a child down at a table and they place a, ma- a marshmallow in front of him or her and uh they tell they tell them if you you can eat the marshmallow now Or you can leave the marshmallow there and I have to leave the room, but when I come back in like five to 10 minutes, um, I'll give you two marshmallows, right? So basically it's a test of gratification, delayed gratification. Do you want instant gratification right now, but it's small, it's smaller, or do you, will you, are you willing to wait for the future to arrive where you will then receive two marshmallows if you, if you wait, but if you don't wait, then you just get the one, right? So that's the marshmallow test basically. Again, title is New Study Disavows Marshmallow Tests Predictive Powers, right? And I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs kind of get a good feel of, of what's going on here. So the test's originator was a central co-author but died before its completion. Ooh, that's That's a shame. If your four-year-old cannot resist eating the marshmallow in front of her, even though you promised more treats if she waits, is she headed for a lifetime of struggle? You're not alone if you think so. For some 30 years, parents – wait, hold up. You're not alone if you think so? Okay, that is just ridiculous. But, I mean, I guess if you hold true to the marshmallow test theory, like super true to it, then you – that's – okay, I don't know. That's just – that's a bit much. But um, for some 30 years, parents and scientists have turned to the marshmallow test to glean clues about kids' futures. The experiment gained popularity after its creator, psychologist Walter Mischel, started publishing follow-up studies of the Stanford Bing Nursery School preschoolers he tested between 1967 and 1973. You can have this treat now, he famously told each four- and five-year-old, or you can have two when I get back into the room. Okay, so yeah, that's the marshmallow test. The kids who couldn't hold out long generally grew... Grew through their teens, twenties, and thirties quicker to frustrate, weaker in academic and social skills, and with more drug use, mental health, and weight issues. All that, according to well-publicized studies in decades since. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's. I mean, I. I mean, I don't. I mean, there's definitely some truth to the marshmallow test, right? There's definitely there's a reason it's such a popular test. Um, I think it's very interesting that those. Those uh, you see those effects deep into like, you know, teens and twenties and thirties, right? Like that's fascinating. Another fascinating thing is with psychology being so young in it's, uh, you know, and what we know about it and everything there is, it's going to be really interesting as we see research that was done in the sixties, seventies and eighties and so on on younger children. It's going to be so interesting to see them grow up and then have the research be completed again when they're adults, because you're gonna get completely, well, more rounded results, right? Just like they're saying in these in this article. It's it's fascinating. That's so interesting. But the latest Bing follow up study by a team of researchers that included Michelle casts doubt that a preschooler's response to a marshmallow test can predict anything at all about her future. Okay, so basically this article is um basically the research and I, I have a lot of these articles, I have read most of them Um, like as in most of them, like most of the way through and stuff, but the, um, the article is, is this one's really long, but basically it's, it's kind of just drawing into question the validity of the marshmallow test. Like, is it something that really should be held to such a, uh, to such a high importance or high impact, right? Like uh, if you put the marshmallow down and you just sit there and you're waiting as a parent, just oh, what's he going to choose? Is he going to wait or is he going to take the two or is he going to you know, delay gratification? Did I raise a good kid? Like it, it's ridiculous, you know, and it's, I think that's one thing this article is, is really trying to say is that holding to it that intensely is the ridiculous part, right? There's, there's definitely some validity to the test, but holding to it that intensely is kind of being shown to be. Not true, all right? And so just at the end of the article, it says, Questions about the real predictiveness of marshmallow tests never dampened Michelle's support for teaching kids delay of gratification skills. He personally worked with charter schools to instill throughout any day's lesson the importance of resisting immediate temptations to get something better later. Anyone can learn this willpower, he contended, even those who just couldn't resist the first marshmallow. Interesting. That's kind of cool. He just kind of made his life's work to... Teach children how to delay gratification I mean there's really a lot of value In learning how to delay gratification To be honest like there's a lot Of value in being able to do that It's, it's something that once humanity Discovered it, the ability To do that the ability to To say to sacrifice The the present in order to Gain for the future I mean that's when that's That's, that's in its own way like a singularity In humanity right Um that just led to so much, so much growth. So, anyway, very interesting article. Very interesting. Very. I, I mean, I, I definitely, I feel like it resonates with me pretty well. I think, I think the marshmallow test is is good, but there is a line to be drawn in how much we hold to one, uh, small little, you know, simple little test. Right? There's value, but let's look at that value realistically. So, let's move on to the second article. The second article I found that was interesting. Right? It's uh. The title of the article is Moral Outrage is Attractive Among Long-Term Relationship Seekers. It was published on March 8th, 2021 in the University of Arkansas News, um, and it was written by, oh, where did it go? Mitch, uh, Mitch Brown was the psychology professor that, that consulted on the article, um, and the science writer was Bobby Whitby. So, okay, this one's pretty interesting. So, it starts out. Um, moral outrage is an attractive behavior, particularly to, particularly to people seeking long-term relationships, according to a new paper by researchers including a Arkansas, including a University of Arkansas psychologist. The work indicates that people who displayed moral outrage were considered more benevolent and trustworthy than a control than a control person not displaying outrage. When it says control person, it's not meaning a person who likes to control things. It's it's meaning a person in the control group, right? So a person who's not displaying anything, just a normal, the, the base level that they're, that they're testing the other group against, and therefore more likely to possess other pro-social behaviors that would benefit from long-term relationship. And then the article continues, there's a catch, however. Researchers found that people had to take action to address the moral wrong in question and not just talk about it to be more attractive to the opposite sex. I love this part. I think it's so funny because it's it's showing that yes, it's cool to be like I'm morally outraged at X thing, right? Like climate climate. Uh, the effect that humans have on the climate, right? I'm morally outraged. And thats it's one thing to say that, but you actually have to physically do something about it in order for the opposite sex to actually find that moral outrage attractive. Not that you would necessarily be morally outraged at things just so you're attractive to other people. I mean, maybe some people would, but like... um and just like looking at the underpinnings of how everything is like in your subconscious when you're seeing other people doing these things in order for that, that attractiveness, that attractive, uh, gas pedal to be pushed, you know, within one person, the other person has to actually do something about it, which is kind of cool. It's like your body and your mind knows that like talk is talk, but walk is walk. Like you gotta, you gotta walk the walk. Right. And so, um, super interesting though, super interesting article. And it, uh, it goes on to talk about a couple of different things. It's, it's a fairly short article, but one thing that it does say that I thought was actually pretty interesting is the fact that it says that women are typically more attracted to moral outrage than men, right? So women are typically more attracted to people being, I guess, more passionate about their Uh, What their morals are and believing in their morals and doing something about their morals and being outraged when their morals are being put in uh, question. And um, women are typically more attracted to that quality than men typically are. I mean, the study came out saying that both of them are attracted to that than, than not, but definitely an interesting little tidbit. I would wonder, you know, for future studies would have to ask the question of why that is, and maybe probably go further into, um, kind of what the attitudes and behaviors there are that are kind of making that, that a typical thing for women. Right. And again, typical, not in every person, but just typical. Um, anyway, let's move into the next article. Uh, let's see. This one is People are less bothered by financial losses when they think they are investing rather than gambling. <laughs> this one's awesome. This one was written by Devin Bonk and Nick Hobson, um, and it is on the website behaviorist.biz. Let's do science, all right? So this was uh, this was a pretty interesting one. Um, it's obviously the title, you know, investing versus gambling. What's the perception of that? So the article starts off. A study in the Journal of Economic Psychology proposed that because people tend to associate gambling with losing money and investing with gaining money, they are less loss adverse when the same financial decision is framed as an investment instead of a gamble. The study was conducted by Zhu Songsheng, Hebing Duan, and Xi Xingyi Lu at the East China Normal University. <laughs> It's called the normal university. Wow, that's, that's awesome. Super special there. Um, no, I'm just kidding. People hate to lose, right? People hate, people even tend to hate losing even more than they enjoy winning. Nobel laureate, uh, Daniel Kahneman and his associate Amos Versky Called the phenomenon loss aversion, the general tendency for negative outcomes to outweigh positive outcomes. As Shang and colleagues note in the current study, loss aversion predicts that the sadness of the person losing loss aversion predicts that the sadness of a person losing one hundred dollars would be greater than the happiness of the same person would that the same person would experience if they gained a hundred dollars. Okay so i i've heard this many times i've heard i've heard about loss aversion and i think it kind of makes sense because to me and on on one hand if i'm sitting here I, I apologize for the 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 chain in the background my dog just just uh shook herself so um if I am sitting here and I am at at zero and I'm uh, happy right now or whatever, I'm moderate, I'm fine. And I, something is a stimulus comes that I can either win or lose at. I feel like the fear of losing would take me below zero. The f- winning would take me above zero, and that's great. But i but like going below where you were before. I mean that the fear. I'm just basically saying that that makes sense. It makes sense to almost fear losing more than being happy about winning in a sense. Right. And, and I'm not even, I don't know if that's like a psychologically healthy thing or not. That's kind of interesting to think about, but it's definitely, it definitely kind of makes sense out of the gate. Right. Um, so later on in the study, there was, a, there was a paragraph I wanted to read. So they did a couple different studies. It's like six different studies for this one. But later on, they say, The purpose of study one was to establish an understanding of the lay theories people hold about gambling and investing. To do so, they recruited 155 adults and split them into two groups, one to consider gambling and the other to consider investing. Regarding their given activity, participants were asked to report the likelihood of gaining money, losing money, and how much this likelihood was driven by chance. The findings suggested that people perceived gambling as more likely to lead to losses and less likely to lead to gains than investing. However, they erroneously believed that success in both investing and gambling was equally up to chance. (laughs) I love it. Erroneously. That's a great word, by the way. But that is, that's hilarious. Um. Yeah. I mean, th- there you go. Just a, just a beautiful gambler's fallacy double think example right there. However, they erroneously believed that the success in both investing and gambling was equally up to chance. It's hilarious because, you know, this is vital information to have, especially when I'm planning on going to Las Vegas sometime, uh, you know, in the next month. And, uh, now I know to phrase for myself, all right, let's go down to the casino. Let's do a little investing. Um, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That would be, that would be terrible. Just to keep telling yourself that, all right, it's investing, right? Sooner or later, it's got to come back. Sooner or later, it's got to come back. But uh, investing just has that, that word, you know, it's investing, it's investing. You can't lose, can't lose. So it's interesting. It's very interesting. So there you go. If you're trying to choose between gambling or investing or what word to use at least, Investing is, is, is definitely a lot more positive, even though at the end of the day, both people, people understand and know that it's kind of the same, right? Anyway, so let's move into the next article. Um, let's see. The next article is called, You Are Not As Rational As You Think. Psychologists show how we react in the face of uncomfortable truths. The results are shocking. And there's this little blurb before the article, and I am not even going to go too deep into this article because it's just, it's very deep. It's very interesting. It's very long. And I would highly recommend, um, joining the news, the news of the bed letter newsletter or, or whatever to get, uh, get the link. I'll share it with you. Go to the discord, whatever, but, uh, super cool. Anyway, the blurb at the top says, To say that facts are, are less important than feelings in shaping our beliefs about empirical matters seems new, at least in American politics. In the past, we have faced serious challenges, even to, even to the notion of truth itself. But never before have such challenges been so openly embraced as a strategy for the political subordination of reality, which is how I define post-truth. Here, post is meant to indicate not so much the idea that we are past truth in a temporal sense, as in post-war, but in the sense that truth has been eclipsed by less important matters like ideology. Really cool opening paragraph. I love that paragraph. It's awesome. Um, I'm just going to read uh, the next paragraph and uh, probably not going to go, like I said, too deep into this one because we're going to have to wrap it up here pretty soon, but uh just gonna just going to read the first one here. We'll see, we'll see how it goes here. So uh, one of the deepest roots of the post-truth has been with us the longest, for it has been wired into our brains over the history of human evolution, cognitive bias. Psycho- psychologists for decades have been performing experiments that show we are not quite as rational as we think we are. Some of this work bears directly on how we react in the face of unexpected or uncomfortable truths. And this is a lot based on the book, a book written by Lee McIntyre, um, called Post-Truth. Um, anyway, so I'll read one more article, or one more uh, little, little blurb here from the article. Uh, a central concept of human psychology is that we strive to avoid psychic discomfort. It is not a pleasant thing to think badly of oneself. Some psychologists call this ego defense, after Freudian theory. But whether we frame it within this paradigm or not, the concept is clear. It just feels better for us to think that we are smart, well-informed, capable people than than that we are not. What happens when we are confronted with information that suggests that something we believe is untrue? It creates psychological tension. How could I be an intelligent person yet believe a falsehood? Only the strongest egos can stand up very long under the withering assault of self-criticism. What a fool I was. The answer was right there in front of me the whole time, but I never bothered to look. I must be an idiot. So the tension is often resolved by changing one, by changing one of one's beliefs. It matters a great deal, however, which beliefs change. One would like to think that it should always be the belief that was shown to be mistaken. If it were wrong about a question of empirical reality and we are, we are finally confronted by the evidence, it would seem to easy, it would seem easiest to bring our beliefs back into harmony by changing the one that we now have good reason to doubt. But this is not always what happens. There are many ways to adjust a belief set, some rational and some not the article goes on for a long time. It's talking, it talks about three classic findings from social psychology, right? The first one to one degree or another, all of us suffer from cognitive dissonance. This is very true. 100% to one degree or another, right? It's almost like the, the, de- the degree of that is what affects how efficient or effective you are in your daily life. The second thing, when a mistaken belief is shared by others, sometimes even the most incredible errors can be rationalized. Very interesting here, right? Look at Look at uh, like the Nazis in Germany in World War II. When a mistaken belief is shared by others, right? Sometimes even the most incredible errors can be rationalized. How do you think that lots of those people rationalized some of the terrors and some of the horrible things that were done that they were doing, right? I mean, just a core, pinnacle, pinnacle, like cornerstone of, of some like humanity and psychology to know. Very interesting. Uh, the third one: when we open our ideas up to group scrutiny, this affords us the best chance of finding the right answer. And this is also really hard to do. It's really hard to open up to group scrutiny, but very interesting in knowing that when it comes to solutions and, and problem solving, to find the right answer, that is the best the best way forward. So anyway, um really enjoyed the article really fascinating i didn't even get through the whole thing yet just because it's so dense and there's a lot going on in here um the art is really cool in it too so like i said i would highly recommend hopping into the bed letter newsletter um or heading over to the discord or whatever uh, messaging me to get the link for this one super interesting really cool about cognitive cognitive dissonance and let's see. Briefly for the last couple, I'm just gonna go over them. Um the titles and just kind of a couple thoughts I had while I was reading them. So the first one is Dark Personality Traits Linked to Compulsive and Aggressive Online Behaviors. It was written by Beth Elwood, posted on March 7th, 2021. Um it was on the SciPost website, and pretty interesting article when I read it. Um it talks about the dark triad of personality traits, which is Machiavellianism. Uh, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psycho- psychopathy. <laughs> I can't talk right now. Psychopathy. There's been so many names and big words. Uh, and Machiavellianism, if you didn't know what it is, it's characterized by cold and manipulative tendencies, right? So I didn't know that one before I went into the article. Super interesting to know. Um, one of those you learn something new every day, which as a psych major, you'd think I would have known that one. And maybe we talked about it and I just forgot, but it's very interesting. It talks about the dark tree triad, uh, triad, which sounds like a drug ring or something, but a, the dark triad of personality traits, which is Machiavellianism, uh, narcissism and psychopathy. Um, and it kind of talks about how those play into somebody's role in like online, uh, online, forums online like online communication behavior right and how how that manifests and if and if these behaviors and if these personality traits are uh within somebody there's like a higher you know a higher chance of them partaking in destructive and negative behaviors online and it's, it's kind of an it's pretty interesting it's not something that per se you'd be like oh i mean it's it's almost one, it's one of those things where you're like oh that makes sense but it's definitely pretty interesting and it's definitely it kind of made me well first of all i didn't know about the dark triad that was the most interesting part to me it's just the whole dark triad thing and so um pretty interesting article another one the next article was uh, yoga shows some promise for treating anxiety according to new research so that's nice um i feel like again it's kind of a uh something that i resonate with a lot just because it It's something that I do every, I do a lot. I do a fair amount of yoga because I have a bad back. And so I've tried to, um, ease that pain with yoga. And yoga really helps. And so I've noticed that just in through the breathing and through all of that kind of stuff, I've noticed that, uh, helping through, helping my anxiety and helping, um, I mean, I don't have a lot of anxiety if I'm being honest, but I do have some and it just kind of helps ease the, uh, the fog in your mind, I think a lot, especially, and just helps me at least helps me think clear, which always helps with anxiety and things like that. So yeah, super cool. It's always kind of cool when you're doing something and you're kind of seeing something and then you find a research article. it's like, Oh yeah, it is kind of working. So yeah, yoga, super cool. Um, and yeah, so I think that's where I'm going to wrap up this art, this, uh, this article, yeah, this article, this, uh, episode. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, if you enjoyed listening, be sure to follow Letter on whatever platform you prefer. Uh, just remember that you can check out my blog and other projects I'm working on over at cashleman.com. Um, if you're super inclined, I do have that Patreon, like I said, where I have details about other services that I offer in editing and tutoring and mentoring, uh, mostly in regards to English and writing, but other things as well. Uh, and then as I said, all this info can be found on my website cashloman.com, c-a-s-h-l-i-m-a-n. And if you're interested in getting any of the links to these specific uh, articles, reading more about them, um, be sure to go to the Patreon and check out the newsletter tier of the, um, of the Patreon where you can join the newsletter. You can get all those links plus more stuff. Um, or you can just direct message me and I'll put you in, in, uh, I'll put you, uh, with the link. Thank you so much for watching, or thank you so much for listening, and uh, I will see you guys next time on Bet Letter.